Father God, you are the greatest reality in the universe. And that you infiltrated human history in the form of your son, took all of the weight of our sin on your back and paid for every ounce of it on that tree, that you did that. And then three days in the grave, you stopped being dead is amazing. It is a historical reality that is stunning to the human mind and heart. But what is even more amazing today, that I pray that you would press into our hearts, my heart, Father, and my friends here, is that that has meaning for us. There are implications for us from the resurrection. There's a kind of hope that surges forth into our souls through your word that is the greatest need of our hearts today and every day. So I pray that you would do that today, Father. Remove any error from my mouth, glorify your name, and be with us in the name of Jesus. Amen. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him though with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he, God, left nothing outside of his control. At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Sri Lanka. is an example of that this morning. But we see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's Hebrews 2 verses 6 through 9, and it's talking, of course, about Jesus Christ, where the author says that at the present time, at the present time in his life, and 2,000 years later in our lives, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him. We see Jesus Christ. We see him. That's been the name of the series that we've been in for the last, this is week six, And today is the last day of this series, and it's fitting that we close this series on Easter, um, the day when when these verses, the verses in Psalms that the author quotes, um, transition from promises of God in a book to reality. That happened. The promises in Psalms became a reality, and that reality is Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might somehow taste death for every single person who puts their faith in him. The author of Hebrews, when he read the book of Psalms, saw Jesus. He saw him. And now we see him 
through Psalms and through this author's own writing in Hebrews. And that's really the point of this series. If you've been with tracking with us, the point of this series is we see Christ, we see his glory, we see his beauty when we read the words of Scripture. We see him in this book. And so on the final Sunday of this series, um, where we're talking really about the profound significance of seeing Jesus Christ in the Word, I felt constrained, really inclined, to um, not focus entirely on the historic event of the resurrection, which is typically what you do on Easter morning, but to instead focus on what that means for us. What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? Is it just an event that floats out there like every other event? Or does it have implications on our lives today? What does it mean that Jesus tasted death for everyone? What does that mean for us, each of us today? And so to explore that reality, I'd like to turn to John 11. So if you have your Bibles, and I do hope that you do, grab them, turn to John 11. I'm going to start with verse 1. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So we begin John 11, this passage, with a man named Lazarus. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, who are two characters that have uh, important roles, significant roles throughout the Gospels. These are friends of Jesus. These are friends of the disciples of Jesus, the Twelve. And so when Lazarus gets sick, the sisters send for Jesus. That's what you do. When somebody gets sick, you send for Jesus because he heals people. And this isn't a a mild fever that they think he's going to get over in an afternoon or a day or two. This is severe. It is significant enough for them to say, we need to send to Jesus because it looks like he's not going to make it. He's not going to live. It was bad. They come to him and they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now that's wild. They don't even use his name Because Jesus loved Lazarus. He knew who they were talking about when they said this to him. And yet he looks at these messengers who were sent to him, and he says, this illness doesn't lead to death. It doesn't. It is for the illness, the fever that's going to take his life. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's what Jesus says to them. And this is what he leaves with Mary and Martha, that God would be magnified and glorified through this illness because this illness ultimately does not lead to death. Now, what we would expect for him to do 
is for him to immediately pick up and do what he's done everywhere else in the Gospels, to go and find Lazarus and heal him right on the spot. That's what we would expect him to do, but he doesn't do that here. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. He loved those three. So, words there in the Greek, so, therefore, it means, when Lazarus was ill to the point of death, he stayed two entire days longer in the place where he was. This is what he did. And immediately when you see something like that, you're like, why did you do that, Jesus? What was the purpose of staying there? You could heal them. We've seen you heal, the, heal people before. We've seen you raise people from the dead. We've seen this before. We've seen you go in and heal people, remove sight uh, or add sight to someone who's been blind. Why did, you, why did you not do this? Jesus loved them. And you'd think there might be some other reason, but the reason John gives us for Jesus staying two days longer is because he loved them. He did it because he loved them. It was Jesus' love for them that kept him where he was and did not allow him to go any further. He loved them, and we really can't miss that fact Jesus' love for them is what initially stays his feet in this story. But eventually he does go. Look at verse 7. It says, Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? So two days since he got this message from these messengers, Jesus tells his disciples, now's the time. Let's go to Judea. We don't know. The implication is they didn't hear the message from Mary and Martha later on in the story. We don't know for, for sure. But he's saying now's the time. Judea is where Bethany is located. That's where Lazarus is. We're going to go now. And the disciples are concerned with this trip. They've got a big problem with this trip because the last time they were in this place, people were picking up stones and trying to kill them. And Jesus, because he was claiming to be God, happens in the chapter before this one. Now, things at this point for Jesus and for his disciples are escalating significantly. They are becoming increasingly dangerous to be a disciple uh, to Jesus. And the disciples don't want to die. They don't want to die. They don't want to be stoned to death, obviously. And so they ask him this question. But I want you to listen to how Jesus answers them in verse 9 and 10. I love the way Jesus answers. This is a remarkable answer. Jesus answers the question, Jews are seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again and die? With this. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, what in the world does that mean? You're going to imagine you're with Jesus. You're hearing, we just asked, why are you going to Judea again? You're telling us about light. What do you mean by this? Jesus rarely provides plain face value answers. He does. But he is always trying to drive reality deeper. He's always trying to take what is on the surface and penetrate down into ultimate reasons for things. And that's what he's doing here. 
Where did he get the day and night imagery? Where did he get light and dark? Well, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know. We opened our series, in fact, in John 1. Let me read to you the first few verses. John 1, verses 1 through 5 and then 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word, the light, the life, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So right at the beginning of John's gospel, he doesn't keep anything secret here. He's very clear. The author not only believes that Jesus Christ is God, Jesus Christ the Word is God, but he also believes that Jesus Christ is the light of men. That's what he says here. John says, Jesus is the light. And Jesus himself makes it clear eight chapters later by saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All the same language that John used earlier. So there's no ambiguity. When Jesus is referring to light, he is referring to himself. He is the glory of the Father personified who is breaking into this world, infiltrating the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of sin, the darkness of wickedness in this world. That's what Jesus is doing as the light. So let's go back to the previous slide, John 11, uh, verses 9 and 10. And let's think about it within that framework, this statement, this response. Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? In other words, in a full day, at least half of it has light in it. They didn't have minutes and hours. They had sundials. Half the day, generally speaking, is filled with light. And when we walk in the light, we don't stumble because we can see where we're going. But when we walk in the darkness at night, we do stumble because we can't see where we're going. If Jesus Christ is the light, what does this mean? means that he is the critical difference between walking and stumbling. He is the key difference. And his question implicitly is in this text, do you see the light of the world? Do you see it? Do you see the light of life in Jesus Christ? And that's a huge question because Jesus' implication is that we must see the light. We must see it. We must see him, which going back to where we started in Hebrews 2, sounds very similar to what we read earlier. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We don't. But we see him. We see the light of the world. And that is what he means by this brief pericope. Now, he is calling us to fix our eyes on the light, on him. But why is he saying it this way to his disciples? Let's read ahead. Verse 11 through 16. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. Jesus knows that he's dead at this point. But they thought that it meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, one of the disciples called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So again, Jesus begins by connecting light and dark, day and night in this, by saying Lazarus has fallen asleep. This is the way that they used to refer to dying. Um, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to awaken him. It is a picture of day and night. Yet they misunderstand this completely (laughs) and think that Lazarus is actually sleeping. And Jesus corrects them. Um, and this, this, this aspect tells me that they probably didn't know that he was sick to begin with, that he was on his deathbed effectively. And Jesus tells them, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus, your friend in Bethany, is dead. Now that alone is enough for them to lose their breath and say, this changes things a lot. Lazarus is dead. He's gone. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues by saying something incredible. Look at his words in verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Lazarus is dead. I'm glad that I wasn't there to heal him. The original Greek is even stronger. Cairo in the Greek, is the word rejoice. This literally says, I rejoice that I wasn't there. For your sake, for your sake, I rejoice that I wasn't there. And if we were to go back to the beginning of the chapter, verses 5 and 6, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, therefore, so he remained two days. Sounds very similar. He stayed behind and allowed Lazarus to die for their sake. He did this because he loved them. And that's heavy. Do you feel the weight of that? I think we tend to jump ahead in this story. We tend to to just go to the end. We know the end of the story. We know what's going to happen. And we don't sit where they are in the pain of losing someone they love. That's where they're at. Why is Jesus glad? Why is he rejoicing that he isn't there? He says it's for their sake so that they may believe. So that you may believe, he says to them. That's what he's after here. So think about the implications of what this means. Their faith, and presumably Mary and Martha, their faith is worth Lazarus losing his life and the excruciating pain of everybody who has to deal with it after. That's what he's saying. That's a wild statement. 
So while we, we automatically are tempted to play it down and ignore it, but that's what's happening here. They don't know that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. They don't know that that's going to happen. They don't know that that's a for sure thing. We do because we've got the, the book, we've read the story, we've read the ending. They don't know that. All they know is they're going to a place where people want to kill them for someone who's already dead, which is why Thomas responds the way he does. And they don't realize, really they don't realize that their faith in Christ Jesus is actually infinitely worth more. It's infinitely more important, infinitely more significant. We got a transformer back there moving around. Um, infinitely more significant than... Um, than their lives in this world. That's what he's making clear here. Your faith, your believing of me, Jesus is saying, is more significant, more important, infinitely more important than the life that you have in this world, whether you live or die tomorrow. And this becomes crystal clear when they arrive. Look at verse 17. We're going to go all the way through 27. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was finally coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus looks at her and says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So we have here the account of Martha. This is Jesus' friend. Jesus loves Martha. And she's running out of the village to meet him right before he enters. And she says right off the bat, you can imagine it in your mind. She sees him, she runs, they hug, and she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. I know it. I know it. Yet she knows, she's seen enough of Jesus to know that he asks many things from his father. And his father always gives them to him, all the time. So Martha knows that it's not over yet. The story's not over yet. And she's right. Jesus says to her, your brother's going to rise again. He will rise again. Death isn't the end. And at this point, she shifts gears and recognizes the theological reason for him rising again. And that is the resurrection on the last day. She knows this. She knows her Bible well. The dead will be raised, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, according to Daniel 12. She knows her Bible. This is going to happen on the last day. But Jesus wants her to know something else. It's great that you know Daniel 12. That's incredible and awesome. 
However, you need to know my relationship, Jesus says, with that day. You need to know what that day means in response to me. I am the resurrection and the life. You've heard of the resurrection on the last day. When Daniel spoke of that day, he was talking about me. And it is only through faith in me that you can be given eternal life. Which is why he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is what the resurrection looks like for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so he asks her a question. Do you believe, Martha? Do you trust in me? Trust in the Christ and believe this promise. And she responds, yes, I believe you are the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the only one, Jesus, who can fix this in the end. I know this. And then immediately she heads out and goes and gets her sister Mary. And we have to ask, even before we look at the next text, what is she expecting Jesus to do? Is he going to wait for the last day before he raises Lazarus? What is she anticipating that Jesus is going to do? Let's read and find out. Verse 28. When she had said this, Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher, Rabbi, is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying. So now we're looking at Mary's interaction with Jesus. Jesus loves Mary. He loves her. And Martha's brought her to him, and Mary falls at his feet and says the exact same thing. Her sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why didn't you come when we called for you, Jesus? That's what she's asking there. We needed you desperately, and you weren't here. And now he's gone. He's gone. And we can't get him back. Mary is very distraught here. Lazarus has been dead for four days. In her mind, it's irreversible, irreversible. She's not wrestling with theology like the resurrection, like Martha is. She is too racked by grief to deal with those terms. And I know that some of you in this room have felt that way before. I don't want to think about the theology of it. I just want to sit in this pain for a little bit. 
and I want to deal with right now, not the last day. So this is Mary. Remember Luke 10, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's learning from him. Martha's in the kitchen doing something crazy, and she says, why is she not helping me? And Jesus says, she chose the better portion, sitting at his feet. Now she's back at his feet, and she is weeping. She is crying her eyes out because she can't get her brother back. Jesus didn't come quick enough, and now he's gone. And the author of John, or the author John, says that when Jesus saw her weeping, when he saw her and the Jews who would come with her bawling their eyes out, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. And he asked them, where have you laid him? And as he goes, he's so moved that he is weeping with them. And the Jews, when they see this, they're marveling at how much he's how much he loved this man for him to be weeping like this. It must have been agonizing for them to see him weep in this way. And it's shocking to them that he didn't stop it. If you're weeping like this, Jesus, over this man, why didn't you stop it? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man, Lazarus, from dying? Couldn't he have done that? It's a rhetorical question. Absolutely, he could have done that. Yet Jesus is here. And he's allowed Lazarus to die. He doesn't save Lazarus. And so the agonizing trauma of this loss isn't just felt by Mary or Martha or the Jews that are consoling them. Jesus feels the magnitude of the loss. Now why? Why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus taking the reality of death and pressing it into the lives of his friends and his disciples. Why do that? He could have stopped this. These are people he loves deeply. Why? And the answer is simple. Jesus means for us to feel the weight of death. He doesn't want us to ignore it. We, we live in a world, in a culture, we're ignoring the reality of death is secondhand nature. We have our lives filled up with distractions, especially in America, distractions that keep us from feeling what death is until it suddenly comes upon us and it's too late and we have to deal with those emotions. That's the world that we live in. And Jesus refuses to do that with Mary and Martha. He refuses to do that with his disciples. Anything he's about to do next, in between the time in which Lazarus dies and what happens next, anything he's about to do is meaningless unless we truly feel the weight of death. We need to feel that weight. And I want, I want to do that this morning with you. Because I love you. And I'm going to apologize in advance because I don't want to hurt you, but I'm going to do this. This is going to be painful. But before we, we move on, I, I want to go here. I want you to think about the person, people in your life that you love. I want you to think about people who you consider closest to. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend. If they're sitting next to you, I want you to look at them actually right now. And I want you to recognize how much you care for them. 
And then I want, to, I want you to feel the weight of what I'm about to tell you. One day, you're, you or that other person is going to be forced to bury you or that other person. That's going to happen. It is guaranteed. Apart from Jesus coming back, that is a guarantee, and it's painful. But we need to feel it because Jesus desires that we feel it. And let me explain. Christianity is not a self-medicating religion. It is not a self-help religion. It doesn't ignore the truth of the world that we live in. What it does is amazing. Through the, the, the trauma of the truth of the world that we live in, it provides us with a solution for that pain. That's what Christianity does. And this solution is exactly what Jesus is about to show Martha and Mary. Listen to what happens as they approach the tomb. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, do you remember what Jesus first told his disciples? Do you remember what he first told them? Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. And here he says to Mary, did I not tell you, Mary, when you sent for me, those messengers, telling me about Lazarus being sick, did I not tell you that you would see the glory of God? This was his promise to her. And the resurrection of Lazarus, displaying the glory of God, is a glimpse of the resurrection on the last day. This is the glory of God that they needed to fix their eyes on. The kindest thing Jesus could have done for all of them is let Lazarus die. It's the kindest thing he could have done. That's how he loves them. That was done for their sake so that they would see him. And I, I don't, he didn't do this carelessly. He wept. This was a man he loved. He felt the weight of that loss. Four days that man had been dead. He wept. When he saw Mary's face and her countenance broken, he wept. Every ounce of her pain washed over him in that moment. What this shows us is that Jesus knows. For those of you who've lost people in your life, Jesus knows what that feels like. He's felt that pain intimately. And this means that although it was horrible, 
Lazarus's death was necessary because it was only through his death that they could see through the pain, through the tears, through the agony to Jesus, to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's the whole point of this story. It is a foreshadowing of the certain reality that on one day in the future, the last day, Jesus will return and raise us, all of us, and those believers in Sri Lanka right now that are gone, he will raise them from the dead on that last day. That's going to happen. That's why we celebrate Easter. Not just because of what was accomplished historically, like a historic event. That historic event has meaning that floods into our lives. It means something for us. That's why Jesus rose from the dead. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the resurrection, says that if there was no resurrection for Jesus, there's no hope for us and Christianity is worthless. He, he specifically says that we are of all people most to be pitied if the resurrection did not happen. And so in this passage in John 11, Jesus takes the future reality of the resurrection from the last day and he forces it onto the soul's of his closest friends and disciples and says to them, you need to see this. You need to see this. That's the point of the story. Jesus isn't playing games. He's not doing magic tricks. It is because he loves them that he allows Lazarus to die. And it's not just for Mary's sake. It's not just for Martha's sake. It is for our sake. Because Jesus wants all of us to be able to look at death in the face and loss in the face in all of its horror and violence and pain and see right through it to the glory of God on the other side. That's the whole reason this happened in the Bible. whole reason is he wants us to be able to look through death to him, to realize that death does not have the final word. Hebrews 2 says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We still weep at funerals. We still lose loved ones. We still deal with heartache, tragedy, and every manner of things that we would like to see in subjection to him. But we see right now, today, him. In his word, in his book, through his promises, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death so that by the grace of God, by God's grace through the cross, he might taste death for everyone. And that's for us who believe. That's for us who see the light of the world. This is the promise of the resurrection that three days in the heart of the earth, that man stopped being dead the same man who wept over his friend dying only weeks before stops being dead because he destroyed the one who has power over death so that when he rose from the grave, Jesus would never die again, ever. So in a few moments, we're going to celebrate Easter by taking communion by fixing our minds and our hearts on the cross of Jesus Christ, 
by thinking of the glory of the resurrection, the promise of the last day. And what I would like us to, to do is to, in our hearts, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit compels us to this, commit ourselves to fixing our eyes on Jesus in his word. That's what this series has been all about. I want us to be able to pick up this book in the middle of the, the darkest nights of our souls, in the middle of the greatest tragedies that you can imagine, to pick up this book and to look into this book and to see Jesus. Even when the suffering is continuing, he isn't intervening, everything doesn't appear to be in subjection to him, but to see him with such clarity that we can say his glory is enough. His glory is enough. His grace is sufficient. I can get through this. I see the one who tasted death for me on the cross so that he could promise us that when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, he meant it. So whoever believes in, in me, he said, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is a promise. And then his question echoes through 2,000 years of history and comes to us. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That though we die, we shall live. And if you do, I want you to know that this promise that he made 2,000 years ago in Judea is your promise today. It will take you through every single storm in your life. It will take you through every single tragedy that you face, every loss, every heartache, every defeat. Because in that promise, he says, death isn't the end. It's not. I still have something to say. I still have something to say. And that's the reason we celebrate Easter. That's the reason for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Our hearts break for the brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka, really all of the people who died in Sri Lanka who are suffering from life-threatening injuries because of the bombings that happened there. Our hearts break for those people. Our prayers go out for them, Father, that you would step in, that you'd intervene, that you'd stop this tragedy. And we know and trust that you have that entire situation intimately in your hand. Every heartbeat, every soul, you know what you're doing. But what I would ask, Father, as we worship here today, and as we recognize that there's a part of the world where Christians who are victims of this attack now with you in paradise, that victims, Father God, of this attack, death isn't the final word for them, and it won't be for us. You will speak again one day in the future, like you did to Lazarus. And when that happens, 
every soul in the heart of the earth will rise out of it. And I pray that that reality, Father God, would not be a fiction to us, it would not seem foolish to us, but that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would lay hold of our hearts in this moment as we worship and commend to us that reality as not only true, but as the greatest news in the world that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Father, do that today in our presence. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.